Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, we have been walking through the flood narrative that starts in Genesis chapter 6. We've seen that the world was very, very wicked and God decided to destroy all of humanity uh, because of their sinfulness with a worldwide flood. Yet in his grace, he preserved Noah and his family by instructing him to build an ark and then making sure he was on the ark safely with animals that could repopulate the earth. And then the Bible says that God closed the door to uh, get Noah and his family in that ark to preserve them through the flood. And God sent a mighty, mighty flood. Water came from the depths, chapter 7 tells us, and water came from uh, the heights, and the earth flooded. It was catastrophic and killed all the animals and killed uh, all of humanity except for Noah and his family. So that's kind of what we've looked at in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7. But now we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8 and... The little subscript in front of this passage, my Bible says the flood subsides. And so we start seeing the flood subsiding that God had sent to cover the entire earth. And what I want to do is I want to look at three powerful aspects of this story. The the subsiding of the flood. There are three things that happen here which are powerful. We may not get through with them tonight, but we'll uh, get a good start anyway. Three powerful aspects of this story. Let me, let me pray for us, and we're going to dig right into this, this passage. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we dig into the Word of God, we are grateful, Lord, for our children, for our students that are learning the Word of God and hiding it in their heart. And Lord, we know that that will pay, is paying and will pay great dividends in their life and in their family. And so, God, I pray that, that you would just continue to capture the hearts of our young people with, with the truth, the veracity, the power of your word. I thank you for the leaders, Lord, that invest. And, and I thank you, Lord, for a church that loves the Bible and builds its, its ministry on the foundation of your living word. And so we want to say we love you tonight. We praise you. We ask that you would draw near to us in these moments. Help us to understand what we're, we're about to study so that we can live for your glory. And we ask and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Three powerful aspects of this story. Number one, God remembers. God remembers. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Have you ever wondered what was going through Noah's mind there on the ark with all of those animals, with his family, water coming up from the deeps, water coming from the heights. Everywhere you look, all you see is water as the flood covered the earth. Have you ever wondered what Noah was thinking as the hours turned to days and the days turned to weeks? And the weeks turned to months. What was going through his mind? I wonder if he ever thought, are we going to make it through this? I mean, this is pretty catastrophic. Are are we going to survive this flood? Is there any hope for those that are on this boat? And in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Warren Wiersbe writes, the word remember in Genesis 8-1 doesn't mean to call something to mind that may have been forgotten. That's the way we use the word Remember, like we say, I forgot where my car keys were, but I remembered I'd put them 
uh, on the counter, or I remembered I'd left them in the vehicle. That's, we, we, we bring something to mind that we had previously forgotten. But God doesn't forget, right? He, he knows everything. He doesn't forget. So that's not the word, uh, how the word is used when it relates to God. God can't forget anything because he knows the end from the beginning. Rather, it means to pay attention to, to fulfill a promise and act on behalf of somebody. To remember implies a previous commitment made by God and announces the fulfillment of that commitment. So if you look there in your notes, God remembered the promise to save Noah and his family and to start over with the human race. Now we'll see this in Genesis chapter 6. Just kind of to refresh your memory, look in Genesis chapter 6 with me, verse 17. The Lord says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so here's what he's saying. I want to destroy everyone but you. And in chapter 8, verse 1, God remembers. God God. Uh, calls to mind uh, that promise that he had made to Noah and begins to act to fulfill that promise. Now, when the Bible says that God remembers someone, it says it many times throughout the Scriptures, it indicates that he is about to take action. So, in chapter 8, we're going to see the action that God takes. I love this quote from R. Kent Hughes. He writes, The hinge between the two halves of the flood story is in 8.1. But God remembered Noah. And the function of that hinge is this. God's remembering is more than a recollection because when God remembers, he acts. So God, uh, God knows he made that commitment to Noah to preserve him uh, through this worldwide flood. And he's about to act to preserve him, to save his life, and to allow him to start over when it comes to repopulating the earth. So what did God do? Well, see, God caused a wind to pass over the earth. Look what it says there in verse 1. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So a great wind began to blow to, to evaporate water and to move remaining water where it needed to go on the face of the earth. So God is using a mighty wind here. And it's interesting to note that God uses wind in many places in the Scripture. For example, do you remember when... Uh, the Lord was trying to get Pharaoh's attention. He sent Moah to Fa- uh, Moah, Moses. Forgive me, I got Noah on the brain. He sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I'm not going to do it. And Moses said, you better do it. I'm not going to do it. And so God began to send plagues. How many plagues did he send? How many? Ten plagues. One of those plagues was the plague of locusts. And the Bible says a great wind began to blow and the locusts came into Egypt. And then when God... Uh, decided to remove the locusts from Egypt, a great wind blew them into the water. So God used wind there. When the nation of Israel was uh, was leaving Egypt, they were uh, taking part in their exodus. Pharaoh said, get out of here because of the death of the firstborn son. And they came to the Red Sea and Pharaoh changed his mind and Pharaoh's army is coming to destroy the Israelite people. The Bible says a wind blew and it's the wind that parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk through on dry land and escape the clutches, the evil intentions of Pharaoh. God used a great wind. On the day of Pentecost, 
the Spirit comes upon the early church there in the upper room praying. Jesus said, be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. And the Spirit comes with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. So in many places in the Bible, you see God using wind to accomplish his purposes. I remember years ago, I was an intern with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I was uh, in between semesters at college and uh, during a, a summer. And they were teaching us as interns how to uh, share our faith, how to share the gospel. And they taught us to share our faith with a track called The Four Spiritual Laws that Bill Bright wrote, who's the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And they taught us some things. They took us to this lake in the middle of Orlando where they were having a July 4th celebration. There are all kinds of people there. And they sent us out in pairs and said, go share the gospel. And this was kind of intimidating. I never had really done that before. And so I go out with a partner to to share the gospel and and the weather looked kind of like it does outside now. Cloudy, low overhanging clouds. Looks like it could rain at any moment. And I remember we engaged these uh, young people. They're probably 16, 17, somewhere in there as a, a young man and his sister. And we began to just kind of talk to them and, and begin a conversation with them. And it began to sprinkle. And the conversation was turning to spiritual things. And, and it began to sprinkle. And it was looking really iffy. And, and I just remember kind of kind of in the... In the quietness of my heart, praying, God, God would, you, would you give us an opportunity to, to, to talk to these folks? And I'll never forget it, the wind began to blow. The wind just began to blow. And pretty soon, the rain was gone. And we had an extended conversation. The young man, Tito, that I talked to, prayed to receive Christ. And uh, he actually called me months later to talk to me about the change that Jesus made in his life. And it was an exciting, exciting thing. But I'll never forget that, that wind blowing. God uses wind. And here in this passage, he uses wind to, to dissipate the water and to get the water to where he wants it to go on the earth. So he's, he's remembering Noah. He's going to uh, allow the flood to subside. And then we see that God seals the fountains of the deep and restrained the rain from the sky. Look what it says in verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. So in chapter 7, the Bible says the deeps opened up, the sky opened up. Rain come, or water coming from the deeps, rain coming from the sky. But now God closes that off. And so there's no more rain, no more water bursting up from the deeps, no more water falling from the sky so that the flood can begin to subside. So, both in its commencement and completion, God is controlling this thing. God, this, this flood is divinely ordained. God is in control of the flood. And then we see that the ark rest on Mount Ararat. Look what it says in verse 3. The waters receded from the earth continually at the end of 150 days. The waters had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Ararat is somewhere around uh, what is now eastern Turkey. That's the best uh, educated um, information we have about where the mountains of Ararat were. And the ark came to rest on uh, those mountains, on one of those mountains. Verse 5, the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So what is God doing here? God is remembering his promise to Noah. I'm going to preserve you through the flood, and then the flood will subside, and there, then you will multiply and fill the earth. God, you might say, is keeping his promise to Noah. 
Now, here's the application for your life and my life. This is not just some ancient story with no relevance to you and to me. This, this story communicates to us the character and the nature of God. Because how many of you understand God doesn't change? The way God is in uh, the book of Genesis, in the days of Noah, God is the same way today. Same God, same character, same nature. He's immutable. He changes not. And look there in your notes. Just as God remembered his promise to Noah, God remembers his promises to us. Aren't you glad? Just as God remembered his promise to Noah, God remembers his promise to us. And so I had some fun with this as I was studying. I began to think, what are some promises that God has made to us as his children? God's grace was shown to Noah. God's grace has been shown to us. So what are some of those promises that God makes to us because of his grace to us. I want to just get in and give you some of those promises and think through them because we're going to find great joy in the fact that God will keep his promises. So, so what are some of those promises? Well, how about the promise of eternal life? That's a pretty good promise, isn't it? John, what do you think? Is that a good promise? Are you still with me here? I mean, you know what I mean by eternal life? I mean when you die, you don't go to hell, you go to heaven, and you're there forever when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I think that's a pretty good promise. And the Bible says in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Look with me in 1 John chapter 5 real quickly. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 11. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Listen to me. Where a person spends eternity is based upon what they do with Jesus here in this life. He says that eternal life is in his Son. And he makes it even more clear in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Listen to me. There are only two groups of folks in the world in relation to eternity. Those that have the Son and those that do not. And those that have the Son, those that know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, have the promise of eternal life. And those that do not have the Son do not have any certainty beyond the grave. They are heading to an eternity in that awful place called hell unless they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. But what a wonderful promise for those that know Jesus. Life, eternal life is in His Son. That's one promise that God makes us as believers in Jesus. There's another promise that God makes us, the promise of sanctification. The promise of sanctification over in Romans 8 verse 29, the Bible says that God predestined that we as his children would be conformed to his son. God predetermined that if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's going to make you more like Jesus. That's why someone that says they're saved, but there's been no change in their life ever, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that they're truly saved or the, the thought that they're truly saved. 
If someone's truly saved, God's going to begin to make them like Jesus. There's going to be a change. I mean, we're perfect. Doesn't mean we stumble. Doesn't mean we don't fall down sometimes and need to get picked back up. But it does mean if you know Jesus, if you truly know Jesus, there's going to be a change in your life. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Is there any fruit in your life? Are there vital signs? I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said, if you want to know if someone's alive, you don't check their birth certificate, you check their vital signs. Right? Check their vital signs. Is there life there? Is there fruit there in their life? And so God promises that if we know Christ, he's going to do something in our life. And one of my favorite verses is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when it says that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, God has promised that when he starts something in your life and starts something in my life, he's going to finish it. Amen? He doesn't just save us and say, okay, good luck, hope you figure it out. No, he saves us and begins to work on us and in us and changes to make us more like Jesus. And, and one of the ways that I know I'm saved is because God won't leave me alone. When I blow it, guess what? God lets me know. He convicts me by his spirit. He helps me to see my need to get right with him and to repent and, and, and get back on the right track. God, God, Listen, God loves me too much to leave me alone, and he loves you too much to leave you alone. If you are his child, he's going to work on you. Amen? He's promised that. When he begins a good work in you, he will complete it. The promise of sanctification. Third, the promise of escape from temptation. Oh, I like this one. The promise of escape from temptation. Look in 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10, verse 13. Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, everybody will be tempted. That's just part of living life when you have the old sin nature residing in you, you have the world bombarding you with its ungodliness and ungodly message, and you have Satan always trying to lure you and tempt you and deceive you and all of that. There, there, there are going to be in our life, uh, lives temptations to sin. And, and all of you were tempted today to sin. Right? But look what it says. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to everyone experiences... But here's the good thing. God is what? Faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. So here's the promise of God. If you find yourself being tempted by anything, being tempted greatly, God always, because he's faithful, will provide a way out. You just got to be looking for the way out. A lot of times we don't look for the way out, do we? Because we don't want to get out. <laughs> we want to give in to the temptation. But God will always provide a way out. So when, when you find yourself in a very tempting situation and you want to do something you know God doesn't want you to do or you don't want to do something God wants you to do and that temptation is strong and the world and the flesh and the devil is knocking at your door, begin to look. Because somewhere around you, there's an escape route. Amen? It may be a phone call to a friend. It may mean you turn off the television. It may mean you 
move your computer to a public space where you can't surf the net alone. It, it, it may mean... It may mean prayer partners that you need in your life daily. It may mean accountability partner that you meet with once a week. But, but, but there's always a way of escape from temptation. Look at the very uh, last book, next to last book in the Bible, Jude. Just a one-chapter book. Jude 24. I've been meditating on this verse lately because it's powerful. There's only one chapter, so Jude verse 24. The Bible says, Now to him, this is a doxology, who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Question, based upon this verse, is holiness attainable for the Christian? Kind of a weak response. What do you think? Based upon this verse, is holiness attainable for the Christian? How, how many would say yes? I would say yes. It's a promise. He's able to keep you from stumbling. Holiness can be a, an ever-increasing reality in your life and in my life because God is able. Not because we're good, but because God is faithful, provides ways of escape. He works on us, makes us more like Jesus. Holiness is attainable. I, I think we need to get to the place in the church where we stop letting each other off easy with flimsy excuses about why we're not pursuing Jesus and why we're letting the world chew us up and spit us out. It's it's time for us to really begin to pursue holiness. It really is. And so there's this promise of escape from temptation. God makes that promise to us. Here's the next promise that I've thought of. The promise of provision for our needs. Promise of provision for our needs. Philippians 4.19 says that, that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Not all of our wants, but all of our needs. That is a promise from God's word. The promise of provision. Grateful for that promise. There's the promise uh, that he works everything together for our ultimate good. Romans 8.28 said that God works everything together for the good of those that love him, to those called according to his purpose. And so we have that promise that whether we see things happening in our life that are very good or things that are very bad, things that are wonderful or things that are difficult, no matter what it is, that God somehow will take all of that, all of those circumstances, all of the pieces of our life, all of the threads of our life, if you will, and he will weave them all together and make a beautiful tapestry out of our life. He will make good out of everything that happens to us. That's amazing, right? That's perspective. That is Romans 8, 28. By the way, if I didn't believe that, if I didn't have this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if I didn't know that God takes everything in my life and uses it for my ultimate good, I don't know how I would cope with life. I I, I don't know how people do it apart from Jesus and apart from the truth of God's word. So there's the promise that he works everything together for our ultimate good. And then there's the promise that nothing can separate us from his love. Look in Romans 8 with me. Romans 8, verse 37. 
Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once you're his, you're always his because nothing can separate you from the love of God found in Jesus Christ. That is called eternal security. Once you know Christ, truly know Christ, you are his. You will always be his. Isn't that good news? Good news. The promise that nothing can separate us from his love. And so you say, wait, how do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know that God's working in you? How do you know that there's a way of escape from temptation? How do you know that God will provide for your needs? How do you know that he works everything together for our ultimate good? How do you know that nothing can separate you from his love because God has promised? And God remembers his promises. Just like he remembers his promise to Noah, he remembers his promises to us. And so we see here that God remembers. God remembers. He never forgets his promises. He always comes through. He is faithful. God remembers. But then secondly, I want you to see that Noah worships. We're going to do this section, and we're going to save the covenant section for next week. There's a lot in the covenant section. Let's talk about Noah worshiping. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. Look in verse 13. In the 600 and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, this is his third speech, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Now, when you look at the timeline, from the time that Noah got on the ark to the time Noah gets off the ark, it's about 370 days, over a year. Noah and his family and all those animals, can you imagine? I don't need to get graphic, do I? I mean, can you imagine? 370 days on the ark. The reason we know that is because of what it says in chapter 7, verse 11. Look in chapter 7, verse 11. gives us a little bit of timeline information here. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Then you look in chapter 8. Verse 13, it says, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters dried up from, the, from, the, from off the earth, and Noah recovered, removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, of the, uh, the second month on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So you put all that together, and you're looking at about 370 days that Noah's on there, because there were 40 days of flood, 40 days and nights, and there was the time where the water had to dissipate. Uh, And he gives us the timeline all through uh, chapter 8. So Noah had been in that ark with his family for a long time. But then he gets off, and what does he do? What's the first thing that he does in verse 20? 
Noah worships. It says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what happens here? Noah worships. For the first time in the Bible, we see someone build an altar, a place for sacrifice. Now we see that over in Genesis chapter 4, uh, Abel offered uh, the, anim- the, the animal offerings, but it doesn't say he built an altar, it just said he offered animals as an offering. This is the first mention of an altar in God's word. And then on this altar, Noah offers a burnt offering, and God smells the aroma from the burnt offering and the act of offering these animals, these clean animals as offerings, please God. Now, this burnt offering took place before the sacrificial system that God instituted through Moses for the nation of Israel. But perhaps this story here is the reason that God institutes the burnt offering as a major element in that sacrificial system. Because the whole burnt offering that Noah uh, performs here pleased God. So maybe God took that uh, from that act that Noah did and said, I want to make this a major feature in the sacrificial system. And as we look at the, the burnt offering in the sacrificial system, we get some insight in what the burnt offering consisted of. The whole burnt offering was an all-encompassing offering. You burnt the entire offering as you offered it to God, and the smell of the, the animal being consumed by the flames would, would, would present a pleasing aroma to God. So when you think about the burnt offering we see that Noah's worship consisted of three things. Look at these with me very quickly. First of all, Noah's worship speaks of atonement. Atonement. God liked the burnt offering from Noah so much, he instituted it in the sacrificial system. Look with me in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1. We'll see here where God institutes the burnt offering for the nation of Israel. It says in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, which is a picture of transference of sin. You, you lay your hand on the animal and say, this innocent animal is going to die for the guilty. Lay his, hand on the, lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he's saying that this offering of animals, taking the blood of the, the animal and this burnt offering, burning the animal, would be an atoning sacrifice. In other words, the innocent animal's blood would be shed to cover the guilt of the sinner that offers the sacrifice. Now, Hebrews is clear. No one has ever been saved by the blood of bulls or goats or calves. These ceremonies... In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system did not save anybody. They were simply pictures or types of the one who would save, Jesus Christ. The blood sacrifice was a a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice when Jesus, our Passover lamb, would die on the cross for our sins. So Old Testament folks were saved by faith. 
But in their faith, they would perform these sacrifices to show that they believed what God was saying to them. That they were sinners in need of a savior. That that innocence had to die for guilt. That blood had to be shed to cover their sins. And all of these, these sacrifices, these offerings, these burnt offerings, were pictures of the ultimate offering that we call the cross. Everybody got that? And so... So this burnt offering in Leviticus speaks of atonement. Surely it meant the same thing in Genesis. When, when Noah offered this burnt offering, it spoke of the innocent animal dying for the sins of the guilty. Noah's worship also speaks of surrender. Look in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9. Actually, verse 8. It says, Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so the entire animal would be consumed, which is a, sp- a picture of, of giving everything to God. You know, some of the sacrifices, you know, the priest could keep some of the meat for themselves. But, but some of the burnt offerings, you gave the entire animal to God. It was a picture of total surrender, giving everything, all-encompassing offering to God. This speaks of Noah's surrender, that he gave these animals completely to God. And then third, Noah's worship speaks of praise and thanksgiving. Look in the book of Exodus, right before Leviticus, Exodus chapter 18. I'm going to show you an interesting time when a burnt offering was used. Exodus chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. Jethro comes to visit Moses. Remember, Jethro was uh, a priest, a Kenite priest. He was a father-in-law to Moses. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a, what's it say there? a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law before God. So he comes to say, Moses, your God is great. God has delivered you. God has saved you. God has preserved you. Here's a burnt offering to worship God. That's what this is about, an offer of praise and thanksgiving. And surely when Noah gets off the ark and he brings these clean animals to offer as a sacrifice before God in his heart, he's saying, thank you, God, for your provision. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for preserving me through the flood. I think R. Kent Hughes says it well. The first thought of Noah was Godward. He gets off the ark. What does he do? Builds an altar. Joyous worship, surrender, and atonement were in this offering. The burnt offering described here represented Noah's total surrender and dedication to God. The offering was totally incinerated to picture the total giving of oneself. At the same time, it was wholly celebratory, thanking God for the salvation just rendered. As it burnt and then incinerated to ashes, Noah was indicating, in effect, all my life is yours, everything. So God remembers, he saves, preserves Noah and his family and the animals. And what's Noah's natural response? Noah worships. Now I said this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Noah worshiping, but I'll just say it again in case you weren't here. And I'm trying to think how to say it delicately. Well, I'll just say it. You know I love you. 
if you have to be begged and coerced to worship, you don't understand salvation. It was a very natural thing for Noah to say, God saved me. He destroyed everyone else. It was his judgment, but God in his grace saved me, saved my family. I'm going to worship. Very natural thing for Noah to do that. And if you, if you understand that you have been delivered from the wrath of God, you've been saved from the penalty that your sin deserves. Jesus took all of your sin on himself. Jesus paid the penalty that you deserve to pay, that I deserve to pay. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the infinite debt we could not pay. Jesus paid it all on the cross. He died for us. When you get that, and you get that you've been delivered from God's wrath, you're not going to hell now, you're going to heaven because of the grace of God, the salvation offered you through his son, Jesus Christ. When you get that... There will be a hunger to worship. A hunger to worship. No one's have to beg you or coerce you or, or cajole you. If you, if, you, if you get salvation, if you get grace, you won't be able to get enough of worship. Personally, your own life, corporately gathering with other believers. You know... Uh, I think about, I read this interesting article this past week about the persecuted church in China and, and, and the, the heavy persecutions that's going on there and the steps they have to take uh, to, to worship together and the danger of them worshiping together. If they, if, if they were able to come over here and just kind of observe, long viewpoint, show them a tour of our just facility and think, wow, man, look at this place. Lights and climate control and seats and sound systems. And, you know, we're usually huddled in three in the morning in some small room somewhere and scared that, that someone's going to knock at the door and it's going to be the, the police, the state police, come to shut us down. Man, and does, anybody, does anybody bother you when you come together to worship here? No. We, we worship freely. We show up at a point in time and we start singing and we preach a sermon and yeah, we, no one bothers us here. And they would look around and think, man. So you, you have this beautiful facility and no one's bothering you. You're free to worship anytime you want to. I bet you're full every Sunday. Well, no. I bet your members don't miss. Well, yeah, they, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. It's, you know, those Chinese believers would just be astounded, I think, at the state of the American church. What we have, the opportunities we have, and how we don't just love to worship. You get what I'm saying there? And so, we can learn something from Noah. Noah understood God's judgment. He saw it all around him. As far as he could see, water. Everywhere he looked, devastation. He was floating on top of of destruction. He understood judgment. He understood grace. He understood that God closed the door in the ark. And when he got off that ark, he wanted to worship. Thankful for atonement. Offering surrender, praise and thanksgiving to God. And so listen, 
if, if you don't love to worship Jesus, if you don't have this, this heart overflowing with love and adoration for the Lord, you don't want to worship him during the week, you don't want to worship him with other believers, you, you, I mean, you just, it's just not a big deal for you, it's kind of hit or miss for you, I, I think you just need to spend some time alone with the word of God on your knees and just say, God, show me what it means to be saved. I mean, help me to understand what a privilege this is. And let God just let God just capture your heart. Amen. The Bible says over in uh, John four that God is God is looking for those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's looking for true worshipers. So if your heart doesn't beat fast when you think of Jesus, when you think of grace, when you think of the cross, when you think of the empty tomb, when you think of the church, when you think of the gospel, when you think of missions, when you think of God's glory, when you think of all these things, when, if your heart doesn't beat fast, ask God to just capture your heart anew and afresh and get you excited about being a worshiper. God remembers Noah worship.